Amen. Well, one of the, the loftiest virtues and most inspiring virtues that God commands his people to live out is that of a peacemaker. Someone who selflessly promotes unity and humbly resolves conflict in their lives and in the lives of others. Not many people would argue that the world needs more peacemakers. That's obvious when we look at the world today, and Christians of all people should be able to see that. But as beautiful as the concept of being a peacemaker is, there is a problem with it. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you've run into that problem. And the problem, or the problem is that when you actually experience real conflict, often the last thing you feel like doing is making peace. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? That we're all very pro-peace uh, until we find ourselves in a fight. <laughs> in other words, as Christians, we, we know we should be peacemakers. But the question is, where do we get the power for that? Where, where does the power come so that we can actually be peacemakers when we, need, when we need to be the most. I'm excited for today's passage because it not only gives us practical examples of how to pursue peace in a hypothetical situation, but it very clearly indicates where we can find that actual power, when we're in the, the real heat of conflict. And so to see that in our text, please follow along with me as we work through two main points. We're going to look at Abraham's peacemaking and Abraham's promise-believing. Before we dive in, I just want to mention that I found a, a, mes a message by Kevin DeYoung particularly helpful on this section, and so I'm going to follow largely his train of thought and pull out some of his insights as we work through here. Now, for our first main point, let me set the scene for you. After God's incredible promises that he gave to Abraham at the start of chapter 12, there are three challenges that we see to it in succession afterwards. And the first threat to those promises was the severe famine in the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham. And that led to him fearfully abandoning Canaan to, to go to Egypt, where we saw last week he acted as a coward, and he put his wife's life in danger. Because of Abraham's sin, God had to intervene to save Sarah and protect the promises that he had, had made to Abraham. And this allowed Abraham, even after his great failure, to witness God's even greater faithfulness to him. And that brings us to the start of chapter 13. Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar, and Abraham called on the name of the Lord there. We were told earlier in chapter 12 that Abraham went by stages from Bethel to the Negev before going to Egypt. And so at the start of chapter 13, Moses, he deliberately shows Abraham retracing his exact steps to the last place he had built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Now that phrase is used a number of times in the Old Testament, and it's tied to genuine worship and genuine thankfulness and dependence on the Lord. And so what we see in Abraham's retracing of his steps is a very encouraging principle. And that is that when we fail as believers, when we face plant like Abraham did, we can immediately repent and return to worshiping and walking with the Lord. Now, as we said last week, that doesn't mean there's not consequences. But when we fail, 
We don't have to doubt God's heart towards us as believers. It's not like he puts us in time out because he's frustrated with us and he says, I, I need to cool off a little bit. We'll see if you, if you behave well. Maybe you can come and, and worship me again. Maybe you, maybe you can walk with me in a bit. Now, Abraham failed in a big way, and yet we see him get up and begin walking and worshiping with God again. And I've experienced that many times in my own life as well. Times where I've sinned, times where I've failed, even just times in ministry where I felt like I've been failing, where when that happens, I can kind of just beat myself up. I, I can feel like God, God doesn't want me to worship him. And a number of, of years ago, I remember a particularly stressful season of ministry. And I remember I, I felt like I'd just really blown it kind of in this one situation. And I went out and I was so discouraged. I felt so defeated. Like, I'm just a, I'm a terrible pastor. I'm, not, I'm just, I'm struggling. And I, I remember getting, getting all alone, having a prayer time. And it was like just in, in a half hour, just praying, reconnecting with God. It's like everything shifted. But nothing, nothing changed. Nothing changed circumstantially. But the way I like to describe it is when we fail, and often when we feel like it the least, what we need to do is we need to look God in the face. Not literally, but you need to remind yourself of who God is, and you need to reclaim his promises. If you're a believer, God never loses his grip on you, but we often lose our grip on the grace of God and on the promises of God. And what we see with Abraham is how dramatically worshiping God changes us. It doesn't seem like anything changed circumstantially. It doesn't say that the famine ended. He still doesn't own any of the promised land, but he's a different man after leaving Egypt and experiencing God's faithfulness there in a whole new way, and he's worshiping God again. Now, you might wonder, how, how do we know Abraham's faith was refreshed? We're told what he did, but it never explicitly says that in the text. But that becomes very obvious when you see how he responds to the next challenge. The first challenge, again, was famine and fear. But in our section, Abraham's tested by riches and relational drama. Riches and relational drama. And the drama is with nephew's Lot, or with his nephew Lot. Lot had been traveling with Abraham ever since he left his hometown of Ur, which means that he'd seen both Abraham's bold faith in the beginning and also how he'd blown it in Egypt. Lot had had acquired great wealth along with Abraham, and much of that was likely due to the very lavish riches that were given by Pharaoh in Egypt. In verse 6, we learn that these men had such large herds by this point that there was no way that the land could support them if they continued to travel together. And so that's what's causing the tension and the fights between their herdsmen over pasture. Now, if you're like me, uh, you've probably read this before, and failed to sense the, the tenseness and the seriousness of the situation. Now in, in our context, it'd be similar to, to a family business where you have two relatives. They're both, both wealthy, but they're in business together. And the way the business is set up and operating is they're starting to lose significant amounts of money. And it's clear this is no longer sustainable. This business, the way we're working, we can't continue to do this or we're not going to be able to pay the checks soon. You know, when, when people start to have money issues, people tend to start to freak out. People often begin to really, um, really become tense and, and anxious and concerned. And so there's tension and conflict in this agricultural setting that's easy to overlook. But as we think about that, I want you to see how Abraham responds to it. Verse 8, so Abraham said to Lot, 
please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we're relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Contrast Abraham's interaction with Lot with what we saw of him last week. It's almost like two completely different men. In Egypt, Abraham was full of fear and and selfish calculating, but back in the promised land, we see a confident and secure man who's humble, thoughtful, and radically generous. It's clear that Abraham's faith has been refreshed because what he does here is wildly countercultural, and it's also wildly foolish from a purely economic perspective. Because Abraham was the the head of their respective families, he had every right in that culture to determine how to settle the dispute between those herdsmen, and he had every right to take the first pick on where his livestock would graze. On top of that, Abraham could have also pulled another trump card on Lot and said, Lot, this land that we're arguing about, who who did God promise that to again? Oh yeah, not you. Oh, that's right. He promised it to me. Abraham could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't exercise his cultural rights. Instead, he shockingly gave his nephew unrestricted permission to decide which part of the land he preferred to pitch his tent in and use for pasture. Abraham's response to this test, it provides some helpful principles on on how to be a peacemaker in our relationships. And I want to share with you three principles that Pastor Kevin DeYoung pointed out in his sermon on this section. The first principle is that making peace sometimes requires giving up your rights. Making peace sometimes requires giving up your rights. Now, don't miss that word, sometimes. The Apostle Paul exercised his rights as a a Roman citizen in the book of Acts when it was strategic for him to do so. And so there are times where it's perfectly appropriate to exercise our rights. However, Paul also regularly gave up his rights as an apostle in the book of Acts. And you see that throughout the New Testament as well. And I would say the issue for most of us is not that we're too regularly giving up our rights. It's that we too rarely do it. Isn't that true? Abraham, he had every right to pick the best piece of land, but in order to to seek peace, in order to preserve his close relationship with Lot, he humbly forfeited that right. Does that describe you? Does, Does that describe the way that you handle conflict? If you're on a a team at work, do you jockey with your coworkers to avoid the the hard or unpopular tasks so you can get the easier or the more prestigious ones? If you are disappointed or have conflict with a a roommate or a friend or family member, how do you respond to that? Do you withdraw and and secretly nurse a a grudge against them? Do you give them the the cold shoulder, make sure they know about it, or, or gossip to others? Do you, do you ever try and own whatever fault might be yours in that conflict or you just automatically put all of the blame on the other person? Do you initiate reconciliation? Did you ever take the first step towards reestablishing peace? A few parents who are here, are you modeling peacemaking for your kids? Specifically, if you lose your temper or sin against your kids in some other way, do you let the the mood remain awkward and and tense with them? Do you try and pretend like nothing happened? Or do you apologize quickly with them and and clear the air? Even if you have to do that multiple times a day. 
But if you, if you don't, I want you to think about how you're training your kids for the future, even in, in terms of how they're going to relate to you. And if you just kind of pretend like, oh, no, I didn't do anything wrong there. Even though you lost your cool, it's clear. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything there. What we're training our kids to do when they get older and have conflict with us, when they're not dependent on us for food and shelter, when they can leave, we're, we're training them in many ways to not reconcile, to not pursue a good relationship with us. For you kids who are, are here, I want you to think about this as well. Specifically, ask yourself the, the question of do you always demand your way with your brothers or your sisters? Do you, you always fight with them about who gets the biggest piece of, of pizza or who gets to watch the movie first, who, who picks the movie or the game that you play? Or do you ever let your siblings decide? Or do you share your toys? Do you share your games? Or are, are you always kicking them out of the room, always fighting about, about whose stuff is whose? Now, as we, in my, my house, we have to regularly quote a few verses to our kids. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. Even more weighty, is a verse we're trying to memorize. We've worked on memorizing. It's 1 John 4.20. It says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's heavy. The Apostle John says, Don't say you love God if you hate your brother or sister. That, 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 that's not possible. You can't love, love God if you hate your brother or sister. And, and that's true in family life, but the Apostle John, he's actually specifically talking about the life of the spiritual family, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't love others, if you don't pursue peace with others, it's important to realize it's not just affecting them. If you're a believer, it is affecting you. Even if you're not, it's affecting you. For believers in particular, though, unforgiveness, it will completely handicap your ability to follow Christ. I have a, a close friend, and for years, he was really struggling. He just could not get traction spiritually. And one of the, the big turning points for him, there's a couple of them, but one of the big turning points is that there was a close friend that he had been hurt by. And in many ways, it was just some unmet expectations that they had never, you know, ended the relationship, but there had been distance, a coldness that developed in, in the relationship from where it had previously been. And a big turning point in, in this guy, really seeing God dramatically turn his life around, was actually addressing that other brother. Again, not that he hated him, not that there was a war, but that he, he had been close with and then separated. And he knew God wanted him to bring it up. And actually to apologize for how he'd contributed to the, the breakdown of that relationship. And it was, a, it was a turning point in his walk with the Lord. And so first principle, making peace sometimes requires giving up your rights. Secondly, making peace sometimes requires separation. Again, notice the word sometimes. And you might more accurately translate this occasionally. You know, I, I don't want you to hear this say, I should just go quit my job because my boss is a little bit difficult. <laughs> or, or my wife, she's, we're having a tough week, I'm, I'm out. And like, separation often is unwise, and there's times where it's actually sinful. But what we see here with 
Abraham is that there are times where that promotes peace. There are some situations where that promotes peace. Abraham, he knew if, if we stay together, the land, this just won't work. And so instead of being idealistic, he came up with a real plan. And so this separation was not based on wanting to end the relationship, but to maintain it, to, to keep it strong. And we see that in the way Abraham, he interacts with Lot through the rest of Genesis. So there's examples of, of this in our, in our lives that we can think of in, and in Scripture as well. And I think of Acts 15, where Paul and Barnabas, who loved the Lord and loved each other, they had a big disagreement about whether or not to bring John Mark on a mission trip with them because of the way he'd abandoned them in the past. And this disagreement was so sharp, sharp that eventually they agreed to disagree and they went separate ways. I think this helps explain why denominations aren't always a bad thing. Often Christians complain, why are there so many denominations? And there is a lot of denominations and often that can be for foolish reasons. But at the same time, there are genuine convictional differences that people who love Christ have on secondary issues, not gospel issues. And different denominations are a different way to maintain unity in the essentials, to maintain love and support for each other in the gospel and let people kind of be free to follow Christ without the conflict that would come from trying to force people with deeply held convictions to work together in the same church. And they see the way that church should play out differently. Romans 12, 18, I think is instructive for us here. Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you have to forgive, but the person actually needs to be kept at arm's length because they're unsafe. I get that. But as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that leads to the next principle. Making peace always requires a desire for peace and unity. It sometimes requires giving up your rights, sometimes requires separation, always requires a desire for peace and unity. Look at verse 18 again. Abraham told Lot, let's not have quarreling between you and me or your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we're relatives. He tells Lot, we're family. We shouldn't be fighting. We, we shouldn't be arguing. We should have peace. To be a peacemaker over the long haul of your life, because it's often so difficult, if you're going to be a peacemaker over the long haul, you have to have a deep desire for it. You have to have a deep commitment to peace and unity with others, especially other believers. Now again, almost everyone's going to be double thumbs up. Yeah, I want, I want peace. I want unity. But the real test comes when there's conflict, when it's difficult. What do you do then? What do you do when people offend you? or let you down? What do you do with other believers that can be challenging to, to connect with, to be on the same, on the same wavelength with? Now, in, in my experience, I found that when people have conflict, no matter how intense the conflict is, no matter how much one person is wrong and at fault versus the other, the conflict can almost always be resolved if both people come in humbly and really desire reconciliation people really want reconciliation, it's almost always possible to get there. But when you flip it, if you have conflict between two people and one of them is bitter or one of them is, just, is resisting reconciliation, then it doesn't matter if you get the best Christian counseling. It doesn't matter if you have the, the very best verses that you share with them or they read the best books. That relationship's not going to be mended until there's an attitude change. Until there's an attitude like Abraham that wants to pursue peace. 
that, that I think is especially true for us as believers. It is so important that we see what a big deal peace and unity is to God. Ephesians 4, 3 says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We see here that the Spirit is always leading believers toward unity and love. That doesn't mean that we're always going to see eye to eye on everything, but if two believers are really walking in the Spirit and humble, then there can still be an affection for others, a desire for the, the good of others and a peace with others, even when there's times we disagree on things. My favorite passage on this topic is John 17, and it's the night before Jesus was crucified. And do you know that he specifically prayed for you and for our church in that moment? The night before Jesus died, he was praying for his 12 apostles. And then he pauses, he, he looks ahead into the future. And he says this in verse 20, I pray not only for these, the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian today, that's you. Jesus is praying for you before going to the cross for you. And what was on his heart? What was the thing that Jesus was, was excited about and desired? He said, may they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Jesus wanted believers to have a deep and observable love and unity in our relationships that's modeled on the perfect and eternal unity of the triune God, on the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's no higher standard for unity that Jesus could have pointed to or called us to now, why does he say he wants us to be united? Well, verse 23, it's to prove to the world that Jesus is who he said he is, that the, that the Father really sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Your unity with other believers and my unity with other believers, it is a bigger deal than any of us can fully comprehend. None of us fully grasp how important this is to the heart of God. In light of that, I want you to think again about your relationship with your roommates, your Christian friends. If you're married, your relationship with your, your spouse or kids, your relationships with other people in the church or, or especially if you're in a community group. Are you making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Or is your life forcing other people to make an extra effort to pursue, to pursue peace with you? Is your life and relationships an answer to Jesus' prayer the night before he went to the cross on your behalf? Or is your life in conflict with his prayer and his desires? My hope is that we will be a church where the reality of the gospel and the power of God is so evident to our city because of the genuine love and the spirit-filled unity that we have towards one another in our relationships. Now, like Abraham, we're going to be tested in this vital area of our spiritual life and we'll be tested for the rest of our lives in it. But before we move on to our next point, I, wanna, I want you to see that Lot, he was tested in this section as well, but in a slightly different way. Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zor was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. I want you to picture the scene here. Lot, he is looking out on all the land in front of him, the land that he can choose, and he focuses in on the, the area around the Jordan River. This valley there, that, that plain, it's fertile and lush like the Garden of Eden. And this passage, it actually echoes back to Eve looking at the forbidden fruit in the actual Garden of Eden. The same word is used here for, for saw. There's another other word parallels as well. But in this passage, immediately, when we hear that, that Lot is looking at this fertile plain, we're given reasons to be concerned. And by the time Moses wrote Genesis, the plain was already a desolate waste because of God's judgment on Sodom. Even though the, the land was very good, the location was very bad because of the, the infamous wickedness of the people of Sodom. And Lot must have been aware of that. He must have known that. Sadly, Lot chose the entire plain of Jordan because it looked too profitable to pass up. Verses 12 through 13, they provide additional foreshadowing of the foolish decision that Lot has made. First, Lot chose to live in the plain of Jordan, which was outside the promised land of Canaan, where Abraham continued to live. Lot knew of God's incredible promises to Abraham, but he chose to live outside of the land of promise in a land that looked more rich. And so this was a, a purely economic decision on his part. The second, the second problem is that we see that his choice set his family on a trajectory for tragedy because he pitched his tent, it says in verse 12, near Sodom. He didn't move into the city. That probably wasn't even on his radar. He probably would have thought, I, I'll never live in the city. But he pitched his tent near it. As you continue through Genesis, Lot ends up there. He ends up living in that wicked city. Theologian J.C. Ryle, he has a, a sermon entitled, Beware of Lot's Choice. Beware of Lot's Choice. Lot, he walked by sight and not by faith. It's the exact opposite of what we're called to as believers. Lot's choice was the obvious one, but it was the natural one, and that was the problem. He wasn't factoring in God. As believers today, we need to, we need to beware of Lot's choice in the way that we we pursue material things. It's so easy to be seduced by the, the spirit of our age and to seek life in the abundance or the quality of possessions. If you're single, you need to beware of Lot's choice as you think about marriage. Don't select a spouse primarily based on their physical beauty because if they don't love the Lord, that compromise can handicap the rest of your life spiritually. If you're married, you need to guard your heart and your eyes and refuse to let any attraction develop in your soul towards someone else besides your husband or your wife. If you're going through a, a trial and all you can seem to see are your painful circumstances, you need to beware of Lot's choice and the temptation to make your decisions simply based on, on the material world and what you can see here and now. Now, some of you might be wondering to yourself, well, what else should we make our decisions on? What else besides the material world should we look to for our circumstances? And that brings us to our second main point, Abraham's be promise believing. Abraham's promise believing. Listen to verses 14 through 17. After Lot had separated from him, 
The Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. Just as the Lord, or just as Lot, I'm sorry, looked intently at the fertile and attractive land of the Jordan Plain, now God speaks to Abraham after testing him. And he says, I want you to look as well, Abraham. Don't just look at that land. Look at everything that your eyes can see. God had already promised to make Abraham a great nation, but now after Abraham's faith has, has been tested, God confirms his promise in a graphic way. Nations back then, they weren't nearly as large as nations today. And so this promise, it ups the ante significantly. God doesn't just say, you're going to be a great nation. Now he says, your descendants, they're going to be like the dust of the earth. I have a a picture here of someone with just a handful of dust. You you wouldn't be able to count just one handful of dust and, and really separate it and count it. And God's saying, if you could count all the dust on the entire earth, then it would be, then it'd be possible to count how many descendants you're going to have, Abraham. It, it, is, going, it is going to be, uh, uh, through your offspring, something that blesses the entire world, that helps fill up the entire world. Now, this promise and image is particularly fitting in the land of Canaan because everywhere that Abraham walked, every place where his foot fell on a dusty path, it would remind him of this incredible promise that God was making to him. Now, not only did God tell Abraham to look at the land, he also told him to walk on it. He told him to take a little, a little road trip and to go to the, the east and to the west, the north and the south, to take a tour of faith and explore everything that he was going to be given. And it was going to go to his descendants. This tour, it's similar to a father inviting his 15-year-old son to test drive a car that he's excited about, that he's promising to, to buy for him when he turns 16 and finally, finally gets his full license. It's a, a little glimpse of the joy to come. And what, what car do all 16-year-old boys dream of driving when they get their license? It's obviously a, a 2008 Toyota Corolla, red Toyota Corolla. The only thing this is lacking is a big dent like I have on the, the, <laughs> the side, of, side of the vehicle. But the, the idea of what God asked Abraham to do is that this is foreshadowing what's to come. It's to confirm the promise in a profound way, to strengthen his, his faith in a deeper way. And again, I, I want you just to, to remember the difference between how Abraham conducted himself in our passage last week and this week. He went from in Egypt desperately and selfishly trying to hold on to and protect his own life at the risk of his wife to now being able to confidently and selflessly give away the best part of the land to his nephew. God had promised the the whole land of, of Canaan to Abraham and to bless the entire world through him. So Abraham didn't need to fight and be anxious about where his cattle were gonna graze. He had seen and experienced God fulfill his promises, and he was confident that God would do that in the future as well. This is the dramatic difference that worshiping God and trusting his promises makes. 
And that emphasis on worship is seen again in the very last verse of our section, where it says that Abraham, he moved, and then he built an altar again to continue worshiping the Lord. Now, in light of what we've looked at together this morning, I want you to think about this question. If Abraham believed the promises of God, how much more should we? Abraham, we see him trusting in the promises of God, but how much more should we as believers? God made awesome promises to Abraham and, and saved him and his family from Egypt, but God has promised believers something even more awesome. He's given us more insight into his promises, and he has saved us from an eternity in hell. While Abraham was willing to give up his rights and take the worst portion of the land so that Lot could have the richest, the Lord Jesus took the portion that we all deserve when he went to the cross and died for our sins so that we could receive the riches of his grace. We should have the wrath of God poured out on us for our sin and selfishness and all the ways we failed to be peacemakers in our relationships, but Jesus took the portion that we deserved so that we could possess the true and eternal promised land of heaven with him. Any sacrifice that we ever make, any attempt at, at reconciliation and making peace with, peace with others, it pales in comparison with what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Abraham's interaction with Lot, it reminds me of the humble but confident posture of Christ that's captured so beautifully in Philippians 2, which says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be grasped and held onto. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Abraham trusted the promises of God. And brothers and sisters, we have far stronger reasons to be confident in the promises of God as well. I hope your soul is, is refreshed by these truths the way that my soul has been studying this passage. And to close, I just have one practical application for you. Pursue peacemaking through promise believing. Pursue peacemaking through promise believing. I think that ha helpfully captures a unique angle of, of faith that we see in this account of Abraham's life. You know, Christians, again, we've said that we know we should be peacemakers. We understand that. But in the moment of testing, we often lack power to humbly and graciously interact with those who we have conflict with. This passage reminds us of the Bible's commands and exhortations to pursue peace. But much more than that, Abraham's great failure immediately before this and his suddenly gracious spirit, this huge, generous spirit that we see, it reminds us that the power to, to be peacemakers, it doesn't come from ourselves. It's not just from our willpower, ultimately. No, it ultimately comes as we trust in the promises of God. And to trust in the promises of God, it requires us to trust in the heart of the one who makes the promises, the heart of the promise maker. If you're struggling to forgive someone who has hurt you or to, uh, to mend a relationship with another believer in the church that you've been avoiding, if there's someone you know God wants you to to reconcile with, but you haven't been doing what you know is right, then you need to, to understand that at the roots of that, if you trace it down, there's a failure there to be confident in the promises of God, to trust the promises of God. 
Because when we, when we see the incomparably generous heart of God and the promises that he's made to us in the gospel of grace, then there is power to forgive, there's power to pursue peace, there's power to live out the unity that Christ prayed for us to have in those great and precious promises from God. And so what should we do with this passage? We should be committed for the rest of our lives to pursue peacemaking by promise-believing. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, we, we thank you that, that we have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray for us as a, as a church. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be ones who are, are like you in the way that we interact with others, the way we interact with our, our family, community groups. Lord, help us to to, to not be quickly offended. God, when we're hurt, Lord, and when we feel like withdrawing, help us to be people who, who lean in. Help teach us how to, how to reconcile with others and to, to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. God, I, I pray that our lives, Lord Jesus, would be more and more pleasing to you and, and be more and more an answer to that prayer that you prayed before going to the cross for us. Help us to be more united. Help us to have more genuine love and affection for one another. And we pray, God, that our church would be a brighter and brighter light to others and show people the, the reality and the power of the gospel in the way that we relate to one another. Thank you for this time together. We pray, pray all of this in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, at this point in our service, we're going to continue worship through the offering and also.